how much sleep are you getting, right? How much quantity? And, and if they're not saying seven and a half to nine, like do not pass go, do not collect $200, doesn't count. That's number one. You got to be getting seven and a half to nine hours of sleep. If they've checked that box, then I want to start digging in on quality. Like how rested do they feel? Are they waking up multiple times throughout the night? These are all things that I want to dive in on. And sleep, I think, is such a critical piece of the puzzle. Welcome to the Physical Preparation Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Robertson, and this is the solo Q&A show. Now, before we jump into this week's episode, I want to give you a quick recap of the week that was definitely an exciting one. Spent middle part of last week traveling up on Wednesday, headed to beautiful Minneapolis, Minnesota to hang out with my guy Tyrell Terry, enjoy just an amazing evening, first ever athlete getting picked In the NBA draft, I'd like to think I've worked with a fair share of high-level athletes, but that's the first time I've ever gone through that process where, you know, being in somebody's house, or in this case, the Airbnb, but going to an event like this and watching a player get drafted. And I think it was really special just thinking about, you know, this wasn't somebody that I had for two weeks or four weeks in draft prep. I mean, Ty was around for six months. We spent a lot of time together, close to 120 training sessions. And, you know, I would like to think that I'm never going to take credit for this guy's development or success, but I'd like to think I played a very small role in helping him just develop the physique and develop the body that he needs to be successful in the NBA. So definitely an amazing evening, maybe not exactly where we would have liked for him to get drafted, not where we expected him to get drafted, but at the end of the day, Two amazing things to take away from this. Number one, you know, my guy's in the NBA. Like, you can't take that away from him. He's going to get signed. He is going to be in the NBA. A lot of athletes dream of that, and it never happens. So that's a huge win. Number two, love the fit for him in Dallas. Like, you can say whatever you want. Like, in the NBA, there's probably better organizations than others as far as how they're ran, the culture. I love the Mavericks. Like, I love how they play basketball. I love their head coach. I followed Rick Carlisle you know, basically since he's been a coach in the NBA. Like, love how he does things. I think he's a brilliant mind. And they've got some great pieces there. I mean, you look around, you look at Luka Doncic, obviously, superstar, potential MVP candidate for years to come. Kristaps Porzingis, a lot of pieces there. And I think Ty's going to fit in really, really well with how they play basketball. So, can't say enough good things about that. Super excited. I will tell you, it was a long 36-hour stretch. When we got back on Thursday night, it felt like I'd been gone like two or three days, and I realized I'd only been gone 36 hours. So definitely a whirlwind, but an experience I'll never forget. And just I just can't say enough good things about Tyrell. What a great human. What a great kid. And just so excited to see him be successful going forward and just to see him live out his dream and play in the NBA this year. So very excited about that. Kids, (laughs) you know, I just said last week, kids are in school. Oh, sorry. Pulled the rug out from under us. The kids are back out of school. They're claiming December 7th, not buying that for a second. I fully believe it's going to be January before they're back in. So could be interesting. Luckily, this is my last week of really intensive coaching. I feel like most of my guys will be out of here after this. 
But still, just dabbling all of that. Next week's going to be really intriguing because my wife's working from home. My kids are, are taking, obviously, their classes from home. I've got to record like five or six podcasts next week because, you know, I have to get loaded up for Christmas break and the amazing people that edit and, and clean up my podcast and make it sound pretty every week. They want to take a vacation. So it's going to be really interesting. Hopefully we have enough bandwidth and resources. The Metronet fiber that we have now versus like Xfinity or Comcast is looking like a better investment each and every day that all four of us are in the house trying to use the internet. So other than that, sports is a thing right now. Cade's in basketball, Kennel's in soccer. She crushed it in soccer yesterday. So proud of that girl. And me and Mr. Cade have been out working on his basketball game basically every day. So just excited. I mean, it's just fun. Like that's what I'm trying to make this for them because at some point I'm going to do just a massive rant on youth sports and the state of youth sports because when I see these parents... And they're literally like keeping the same team together for years, trying to win like the U8 championship in their league. It's like, come on, man. Like, really? Like, come on. This is ridiculous. Like, all I want is for sports to be a positive experience for my kids. I want them to learn the basics and fundamentals of sport. I want them to stay healthy and be active. I want to put them around other kids, learn communication, learn teamwork, learn winning and losing. Like, these are our fundamental life skills. And when I see how some people are, are trying to do this and, and massage the system and trying to build these like little superstar teams, uh, makes me nauseous. But anyway, let's take a quick break. I can't wait to do this episode because there's so many good questions in there and we got some short pithy questions. We got some longer, more drawn out questions. I think it's going to be fun. Quick break. And then we're going to jump in. It seems like almost every day I talk to a young trainer or coach who was frustrated. Maybe they're frustrated with the results they're getting. Maybe they're frustrated because they don't have trusted resources to learn from. And maybe they're frustrated because they simply don't have enough clients and wonder how long they'll be able to stay in the industry. So if this sounds anything like you, I've got something that I know will help. My Complete Coach Certification was created for trainers and coaches just like you, who are serious about the results they get and know that becoming a better coach can directly translate to a bigger bottom line. This certification is gonna take the last 20 years of my life's work and put it all into one massive course. In it, you'll learn how to use the R7 system to create seamless, integrated, and efficient programs for clients and athletes of all shapes and sizes. How to create the culture, environment, and relationships with everyone you train so you can get the absolute best results. The exact progressions, regressions, and coaching cues I use in the gym, from squatting and deadlifting to pressing and pulling and everything in between. And last but not least, I've added an entire section on my assessment process and how to use that to write programs faster and more effectively than ever before. Of course, there's a ton more that I cover, but that should give you a pretty good idea of what the certification is all about. Now here's the thing, spots for the certification will open twice per year for a limited time only. If you're interested in learning more, my next certification will launch in March 2021, and if you join my free insiders list, you'll be able to save $200 when it opens. To get on the insiders list, just head over to completecoachcertification.com. Again, completecoachcertification.com, and then stay tuned for our launch emails coming very soon. Thanks so much for your support, and I hope you'll pick up a copy of the Complete Coach Certification when it launches. 
All right, my friend, the big Q&A show. Let's go. So what I have here are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten questions. Some are a little bit longer and will require a little bit more explanation. Some are very short, almost like lightning round questions. I've done my best to save those for the end, but I think we've got something in here for everybody. So let's go ahead and dive in. Starting with Danny. Danny's question is, what is your response to clients that want variety versus a linear program? And I asked Danny to clarify that a little bit because I thought I knew what he was asking. And basically what he means is, what do you say to a client or athlete that has this constant need for variety? They always want a different exercise or a different set rep scheme. And this is a great question because I think this is something we all struggle with at some point. If you haven't struggled with it before, you probably will at some point. You're going to have that client. We just describe it as somebody that has like training ADD. They're like on a fat loss program one week and the next program they want to be bodybuilders and the next week they want to be a power lifter. So what I try and do with people like this, first and foremost, is educate them. I try and explain to them why, hey, look, we can chase all of these things over time. And we can build you to a point where you are respectably strong, respectably lean, respectably athletic. But what we can't do is train for all of those goals in one training program, right? Like there has to be this buildup to it. So if you want to get really, really strong, we need to take some time to build up to that. And then we can shift gears and then we can maintain our strength while we focus on leaning out. And then once we're lean, then we maintain our strength and our leanness while maybe we try and become more athletic. Like you can put the pieces together in whatever order or sequence you want, but you can't do all of the things at once. So there's how you set up multiple programs, but then there's also this element of teaching athletes and clients to move better. And this is something that if you followed me for any period of time, you know, it's, it's really a cornerstone for my philosophy. Like I want you to be able to squat and hinge and push up and chin and do all these basic fundamental movement patterns at a high level. So I can't do that if one week we're goblet squatting, the next week we're back squatting. The week after that we're zerker squatting and the week after that we're safety bar squatting. Like that doesn't work. Unless you have somebody that has just an incredibly high movement competency which most of our clients and even our athletes don't have in the weight room, you have to line things up a little bit more sequentially. So that's where, first and foremost, I try and educate them. And I try and explain to them, look, this is why I do things the way that I do them. Now, with that being said, you as a coach have to understand what level of novelty each client or athlete needs. And here's what I mean by that. Some people are okay with vanilla, like me, I can do vanilla for years on end. When I was powerlifting, I squatted, I RDL'd, I glute hammed, I maybe did some lunge variations. I, on my deadlift days, I would deadlift, I would good morning, I would maybe do like a step up or a rear foot elevated split squat, more glute hams. You know, I benched, I rode, I chinned. Like I probably did about 20 exercises for about five years straight. And that's how you get strong. Like, let's be real here. You're not chasing a hundred different exercises in an effort to get strong. You focus in on what matters most. Some people can do that, other people can't. So if you have one of these people that seeks out or needs more novelty, find ways to deliver that, but maybe not always 
in those main exercise slots. Maybe you can give them more variety in their assistance exercises. Maybe you can give them more variety in their conditioning elements or in that R6 resiliency portion of their workout. Maybe you can spice up their warm up a little bit. Maybe you can give them some novelty if they're an athlete and there are four in their reactive work. There's a lot of ways you can add novelty into a program, but I think that's that's part of the art of it, right? Once you understand like these are the main things that they have to have in their program to see success, then you dabble in and you sprinkle in, okay, where can I find novelty throughout the rest of the workout that'll keep it fun, that'll keep it engaging, but that won't detract or take away from that main training effect. So Danny, hope that helps you out. Next, I have no idea how to pronounce this. Just on Instagram, it was FlexBNR. So Flex wants to know, after talking to Stefan Jones, have you used some of his concepts, like separating athletes into hip and knee dominance, skill stability, the Bosch ideas, etc.? So first off, if you didn't listen to that episode with Stefan, definitely check it out. I did read all of the Bosch book years ago. There's, when it comes to Bosch, I think most people will tell you that there's definitely elements that are sound, right? Like some of the speed development stuff, some of the quick exercises, like the step up variations, the quickness. I mean, you can see elements of that in iFast almost every day like teaching athletes to drive and extend through a hip to get full internal to external rotation, whatever that means to you. Those are pieces that we definitely use. I don't necessarily use some of the terminology that he does. You know, when you talk about like hip and knee dominance, one of the big delineators that I have to kind of tease out or differentiate my athletes, I have my kind of slower, more force-based creatures. And then I have my more bouncy and elastic-based creatures. So I'm definitely always thinking about that, right? So if you think of a continuum, you might have your really slow guy on a basketball court, right? It takes him a while. He's a two-foot jumper. Takes him a while to produce force. Even though he he's producing peak force, it's maybe not where you would expect it to be or peak power. On the other end, You've got like your bouncy, super elastic guy that looks like a rubber band, never been in a weight room in his life, but can could dunk when he was in like eighth grade. Like I have that wide of a spectrum with my basketball player. So I'm definitely always thinking about that, not always in the terms or in the way that Stefan does, but I'm always trying to tease out what kind of athlete do I have in front of me? And keep in mind, just because we have that spectrum and we've got those two distinct ends, a lot of your athletes fit somewhere in the middle, right? And so it's your job as a coach to figure out, okay, what kind of athlete am I dealing with? What makes them great? Like, what is their superpower? What is their weakness or their rate limiter? And how do I maximize their strengths while bringing up those rate limiters or their weaknesses to a point where they're not impeding their progress anymore? And I think this is something that that I definitely made a mistake of in the past. I would focus so much on a weakness and try and make it a strength. And again, this was like 15, 16, 17 years ago when I was just getting started. But I think, oh, that's a weak point. Like, I'm really going to bring that up. I'm going to bring that and make it a strength. Like, it just doesn't work like that. If you've got like this bouncy elastic creature and you try and take them in the weight room and just chain them to a squat rack or just have them deadlift all day, like, okay, you're going to make them stronger, but maybe you take away that superpower that makes them great. 
So that's definitely something that that I think a lot about and something that I put a big emphasis on with my athletes. So I don't think about it exactly like Stefan does. I think Stefan's a brilliant guy. He's one of the few people on Instagram who I follow who I really genuinely enjoy their content because agree or disagree, he's always making you think. And I love that he's pushing the envelope between not just the skill and the skill development side, but he's pushing these you know, like unique thoughts. He's not parroting other people's stuff. He's putting data behind it. Like, I think he's a brilliant guy. So if you missed that episode with Stefan, definitely go back and check it out. He's somebody I'm going to bring on the show again, because I think we need more people like that. There's a lot of people that are just regurgitating the same old stuff. Stefan definitely beats to his own drummer. He's taking all these great ideas and funneling it into his, his skill and his sport, which is cricket. And I can't say enough good things about him. So not using exactly the stuff that he is, but definitely trying to tease out the types of athletes and then train them specifically based on what they need. Okay, number three, Chris wants to ask, he says, Coach Mike, how do you decide which forms of power training exercises to incorporate during the reactive stage, which is R4 of the R7 system? So whether it's jumps, plyos, speed, strength, all that good stuff. He goes on to say, I'm finding it hard to choose between jumps stretch shortening cycle plyos, and speed strength exercises when it comes to my programs, especially because I usually only have one hour to check off as many boxes as possible. So Chris, this is a great question, man. And I would say, first and foremost, if you're struggling to figure out what types of exercise to choose, I would start by watching the sport and then reverse engineering what you need them to be able to do in their sport. So let's use basketball, for instance. In basketball, a typical play could involve an acceleration, right? It could be anywhere from one to two steps to three quarters of a court length. So there's an acceleration, there's a deceleration, maybe there's another acceleration to go to the basket, and then a one foot, two foot, or like a right or a left or a two foot takeoff vertically. All right, maybe that's going to transition into a run back down the court or a back pedal, a defensive stance where they have to move side to side. So if I watch just a couple plays of basketball, I can start to deconstruct the things that they need to be able to do. Basketball player needs to be able to accelerate. They need to be able to move laterally side to side, whether that's a shuffle or a crossover step. They need to be able to do some level of backpedaling, maybe not at a high, high level, but it's something I want to expose them to. And, you know, they got to be able to go vertically, right? Right foot, left foot, two foot jumps. So once I have that, now I can start to deconstruct and build different training themes for my R4. So not to say this is the only way that I can do it, but let's say I have four days. If I have four days to work with a basketball player, one day I'm going to put an emphasis on linear acceleration right? Those first couple steps, it could be one, it could be two to three steps, you know, just working on acceleration and getting downhill. A second day could be linear deceleration. So how do you stop? If you're closing out on a guy, how do you stop on two feet? If you're doing a lunge stop, how does that look? If you're doing a jump stop, how does that look? So I've got a linear acceleration, a linear deceleration. I've got a lateral acceleration day where maybe I'm just focused on pure like one or two steps, like a shuffle. It could be a crossover step, just putting power into the ground outside and lateral to my body to get my momentum going in the opposite direction. And then finally, I've got a lateral change of direction day. So you think about being able to change direction, move side to side, shuffle, hip turn, all those different pieces 
So once you've deconstructed the movements, now you can lay out the training days and then the means and the methods basically fall into line for you. Okay, so if it's a linear acceleration day, maybe I'm going to do some med ball throws out of a split stance. Maybe I'm going to do some ball drops to get them just accelerating, chasing their shoulders. If somebody's just never learned how to accelerate before, maybe I'm going to have them do something really basic like a prowler push or a prowler march with a decently heavy weight. So they've got to learn what an appropriate acceleration angle looks and feels like. So rather than just picking random exercises, deconstruct the sport that you're playing or that you're coaching, figure out what postures, positions, movements they need to be able to hit, and then train for that. And I think if you're unfamiliar with this stuff or you don't understand this, go check out Lee Tapp's work. Like I wouldn't be half the strength coach, strength coach, physical prep coach. I wouldn't be half the coach I am today when it comes to speed work if it wasn't for Lee. Like I have learned so much from him. The concepts and the foundation that he has given me have allowed me to have a filter to look at any other piece of speed and develop speed, power, development work. Like I just can't say enough good things about him. So definitely check out Lee's stuff, but that's what I would do. I would basically look at the sport, look at the movements, reverse engineer it, and then figure out how to plug it and play once you go into the gym. And I think the the great thing about this is once you start to understand this, it's going to carry over to everything that you do, everything that you do. So just because you're doing lateral acceleration in your R4 doesn't mean you can't do it in R5. Right? Maybe we're going to slow that pattern down. We're going to work on feeling the right things when we go in the gym. So maybe we're going to do like a lateral chop with a weight shift. Maybe we're going to do a lateral split squat or a lateral lunge. Maybe when we get to our R6, we're going to do some repeated shuffles or change of direction work. So now we're stressing those tissues in a fatigue state. So they're prepared for it when you go on the court. So I think this is where you can really make your stuff next level. It's not just like, oh, well, it's Monday, so we're going to squat because everybody squats. It's like, no, I'm going to squat because a squat allows me to change levels. It allows me to produce force in a vertical nature. Like once you start to think in that fashion, every program you write is so much more seamless. It's so much more cohesive. And ultimately, the athlete gets such better results. So I hope that helps, man. Next up, we have Steve. And Steve wants to know, what is your approach to conditioning for a gym pop client who is coming to you or iFast from CrossFit? Well, you know, this is a tough one because we have had these people and not to say all CrossFitters think alike because they definitely don't. I've worked with some really great CrossFitters that want to change. They want to reform a little bit. They want to educate themselves. And I've also worked with the people that come in for two weeks, do a trial, and they never come back because we're just not their jam. And I'm okay with that. But coming back to what we discussed earlier, I think a big piece of all training and all coaching is education. You have to let people know like, hey, I'm not just doing this to make you suffer. I'm not just doing this because I dislike you, but I'm doing this because ultimately I think it's what will set you up for success down the line. So If I get your typical CrossFitter that is overtrained, beat up for whatever reason, then we're going to educate them on the fact that, hey, look, you can't go hard six days a week, sometimes two a days, and expect your body to recover from that. Like I work with world-class athletes, and a lot of these guys 
in total are in the gym two, two and a half hours a day. And we manage their workload and we waive their volume and intensity. So we're going to have high intensity days. We're going to have low intensity days. We're going to make sure that you can recover because it's about getting a desired training effect every day. It's not about seeing how sore or how tired you can be when you walk out of the gym. So we've had all kinds of discussions. We've had the discussion of you're not going to do anything high intensity in the gym for X amount of weeks, or we're not going to allow you to go high intensity until we hit certain markers as far as rest and recovery goes. It could be sleep. It could be resting heart rate. It could be just general feelings of well-being, right? Some of these people, if you look at their subjective scores, like they're miserable. They look amazing on the outside and they feel awful on the inside. So it could be as as basic as, hey, we're going back to square one. We're going to do like the, the long duration, low intensity stuff. We're going to stimulate that parasympathetic nervous system. We're going to get your body to chill out and relax. We're going to work on grooving good movement patterns in the gym, and then we can start to ramp things up. And, you know, even with clients like this that that struggle with the high intensity stuff, I find in a lot of cases, it's it's not just high intensity. It's this combination of high intensity for a long duration with limited rest, repeated ad nauseum. So here's what I mean by that. Imagine high intensity on an airdyne. Imagine going six seconds as hard as you can. Like if you're really going hard for six seconds, that's hard. But now imagine you have 54 seconds off and you're going to do that eight to 10 times. Like that's doable, right? Like it's hard, it's intense, but it's doable and you can recover from that. Now imagine 30 seconds max effort on an airdyne with 60 to 90 seconds off times eight to 10 rounds. Can you imagine the difference there? Like one has a, a manageable a manageable amount of fatigue. And on the flip side, you're literally just beating a dead horse like the last six or seven rounds. So you have to educate first and foremost. And from there, you have to prescribe workouts that will allow them to feel like they're getting the training effect that they want while also keeping them from doing themselves more harm. And I think when people come to us, right, when they come to iFast, it's because they haven't been successful somewhere else. And whether that's another gym, whether that's a CrossFit, they're coming to us because they haven't seen the type of success that they want somewhere else. And so that's where we've got to educate them and we got to let them know like, hey, look, I'm doing this because it's in your best interest and because I care about you, because I want to see you succeed. And if you have that adult conversation with somebody and they're just not feeling it or they don't come back, like don't take that personally. And I think that's one of the most important things to hear as a coach. Like I can't tell you how many clients came into my gym and were maybe there for a week or two weeks or a month or two months. And they just, they didn't write it out for the long term. And I used to beat myself up about that, not understanding that, Hey, look, like that's okay. That person just isn't a great fit for you. And hopefully wherever they go, is a great fit for them. And those people are going to take care of them and they're going to be healthy and successful for a long time there. So kind of a long-winded answer there. Educate them as best you can. Do what's in their best interest, even if they don't always like it, right? That's part of the education piece, why it's important to them. And if you do all that and it still doesn't work out, so hold your head up high, know that you did what was in their best interest. And for whatever reason, it just didn't work out and that's totally okay. Okay, next up, we have Syl. Sill wants to know about what considerations he should take for strength and conditioning 
weight class athletes like boxing or MMA. And he goes on to say, all this weight cutting thing is a mess. And first off, I couldn't agree with you more. When I was in powerlifting, I remember there was a huge distinction between the federations where you weighed in two hours in advance and the federations where you weighed in 24 hours in advance. So, you know, when I was in the 198s, I'd train maybe 204. If I was really heavy, 205, I didn't like cutting seven pounds. Like, and some guys, as I'll mention here in a minute, cut way more weight than that. But seven pounds for me over a week was uncomfortable. Like, I didn't like it. And then I started to understand, like, dude, this is nothing. When you hear about guys that were doing in the 24-hour weight class, they would be 190, you know, they were training at 190, They'd cut down to 165, I mean, depleted, just looking awful. And literally, they'd weigh in, and then their handler would take them to, I mean, it wasn't even a recovery place. They'd take them to, like, the ER at the time and get them IV fluids to get their weight back up. Like, that's crazy. So as far as considerations for weight class athletes, whether it's a power lifter, whether it's a wrestler, an MMA fighter, a boxer. I'm actually reading this amazing book now. It's called Peak, Dr. Mark Bubbs. He's going to be on the podcast in, in the next couple of weeks here. But just talking about a really strategic approach, get a good nutritionist, dietitian on board so you can do this in a strategic fashion. Like don't massively try and manipulate water or cut weight that last week. There's a lot of guys and gals that are doing this in a scientific way now where over the course of six to eight weeks, you know, they're losing pound, pound and a half each week. You know, if you got to cut two pounds of water weight the last couple of days, that's not a big deal. But when you're dropping like eight to 10 pounds of water weight, like dehydration, cramps, nausea, lack, like slowing of your performance and your nervous system, like it's a mess. Reaction time, it's not how you want to set things up. So number one, get with a good nutritionist, a good dietitian that can help you manage this in the correct way. Another piece that I would say, and again, this is from personal experience, don't train super, super heavy and, and hope to magically cut and make weight at the end. And, and this is something that I saw a lot of times in powerlifting where people were just way too heavy in their training. They tried to like clean things up like the last seven to 10 days. I mean, you're not cutting 15, 20 pounds in seven days. And even if you do, if you're on a two hour weigh in, like you're miserable, right? Like that's when you're going to have some sort of massive injury or blowout, or you're just going to get crushed underneath the bar. Like I saw it in powerlifting where people cut too much weight too fast. They couldn't rebound. So then they get under the bar and they're sluggish. They got no top end performance will absolutely be impaired if you try to cut too much weight too quickly. So I'd say those are my two biggest recommendations. And I'm not in MMA, I'm not in wrestling, I'm not in boxing. I know there's a definite culture there, but powerlifting is not too far off. Get a dietitian, get a nutritionist, follow a just sound weight cutting protocol, don't get too heavy, and then most importantly, don't be unsafe about this, right? Unless you are a professional, unless you're getting paid to do this, it's not worth suffering some sort of major injury to do something recreationally. And that was one thing that I always tried to, to be realistic about when it came to powerlifting, like nobody, like nobody's getting paid to powerlift, right? Unless you're in like the top 10 or 15 dudes in the entire world. And I would say most of these guys now probably get way more money from promotions and sponsorships than they do lifting in meets. It's been a while since I've been around the sport, so I could be wrong, but hey man, 
Be smart, do it in a sound, logical, scientific fashion, and just don't put yourself at risk because it's just not worth it. So next we have my guy Hunter. So Hunter is a baseball player from iFast. And this is a question that we talk about quite a bit, this concept of underload versus overload training. And whether it's weighted balls, weighted bats, we see this stuff crop up in a lot of different sports. And I think what I've seen over the years is that it's it's like a 10% fluctuation up or down with regards to weighted implements that doesn't alter motor performance or motor skill. So I'll give you a very sharp contrast. One of the athletes that trained at IFAST for years, great young man, pitched at a division one college. And their goal was to increase velo, increase velocity for all these pitchers in their off season. So day one, they show up and they are put on a weighted ball program. And I kid you not when I say this, I believe a baseball weighs five pounds, right? So at most you want like a six ounce ball or yeah, a five ounce, a baseball weighs five ounces. So you probably want like a six ounce and a four ounce. Like that would be within the realm of of tolerance, right? Like you don't want to get too high. You want to get too low. And I kid you not when I say they show up and on day one, they're asked to throw a 16 ounce weighted ball. So basically three times what a baseball weighs. And even worse, one of these kids who's a freshman tears his UCL on day one. So I think a lot of this stuff gets carried away, kind of like the weight cutting question. A lot of this stuff needs to be applied in a scientific manner. And I know my guy, Eric Cressy has talked about this for years. Like there's a very specific way that you ramp up to this. So I would say your first consideration is number one, don't get too heavy or too light. The most important thing is maintaining the motor skill. So you start getting too heavy or you get too light. It impacts the motor skill. And that's that's where you make your money, right? It's all about the skill in something like pitching. So find a reasonable over or under load. And again, I think the general consensus that I've seen is about 10%. So that's number one. Number two, be smart about how you implement this stuff. You don't go in the gym your first time ever and start doing like 20 by 20. You just, you'd be crippled, right? But yet you see in a lot of these overload, underload programs, they go in and they just hit you with a volume bomb these first couple weeks. And, and you wonder why people are getting injured. Well, maybe it's not just the implement. Maybe it's just not being smart about how you implement the volume and the intensity and how you manage those things. So I would say whenever you introduce something like that, very minimal volume, like be very cautious and just very gradually ramp up. Like you don't have to just destroy yourself each and every time you come in the gym. (laughs) I think I've mentioned this like three times now, but like just be judicious in how you, how you start to load your body and load your system, because it's not about how much stress you can tolerate. It's how much stress you can recover from. So maybe, I don't know. I don't, I don't write weighted ball programs, but maybe it's like two rounds of 10 throws to start. Maybe that's all you need. It's like minimum effective dose. And then over time, as your body tissues get used to it, as you get used to the stress that that puts on your body, you can start to ramp things up. So I would say those are the two big pieces there, my guy. Make sure you're not using too heavy or too light of a load. Preserve the motor skill first and foremost, because that's what you get paid to do. Whether it's throwing a baseball, hitting a baseball, don't mess with the motor skill. So use an appropriate load. And number two, be judicious and be smart in how you start to incorporate the program. 
low volume, low intensity, let the body accommodate to it, get used to the stress, and then slowly ramp and build up over time. It's not about how much you know, VLO can I get in the next three weeks? I'm always saying, hey man, how much more VLO can we get in the next three years? So play the long game with this stuff, be smart about it, build a big base of fitness, and I think you're gonna be much better served than trying to shortcut or fast track this stuff because I think ultimately when you do that, it leads to a lot more pain than it does pleasure. Okay, next, Eugene definitely gets the award for the most broad and wide ranging question of the day. Eugene just just says about recovery, the wins and whys. <laughs> so I'm assuming Eugene wants some insights into how I prescribe or how I talk about recovery. And it's a great question. It should probably be an entire podcast or series of podcasts, but let's just touch on some of the low hanging fruit here first, because I think when most people hear recovery, they think modalities. So it, Modalities are kind of like supplements to nutrition. So instead of talking about, oh, you need to eat nutritious whole foods, you need to get an appropriate blend of protein and carbohydrates and fats, people are like, hey, what supplement can I take that's going to help me be ripped and run a 4-240 and bench press 500 pounds? Like that's how most people think. Instead, they need to focus on the big rocks. And so instead of talking about modalities with regards to recovery, the first box that I'm checking is sleep. How much sleep are you getting, right? How much quantity? And and if they're not saying seven and a half to nine, like do not pass go, do not collect $200, doesn't count. That's number one. You got to be getting seven and a half to nine hours of sleep. Number two, if they've checked that box, then I want to start digging in on quality. Like how rested do they feel? Are they waking up multiple times throughout the night? These are all things that I want to dive in on. And sleep, I think, is such a critical piece of the puzzle. A lot of my my basketball guys, I don't worry as much. Sometimes I do. Like, let's be real here. There are some of them that I know are only getting six and a half to seven hours of sleep. That makes me nervous for a lot of reasons, right? Because we know if they're not getting enough sleep, they're an increased likelihood of injury. We know their performance is going to be impaired, like fine motor skills, coordination. Those things are all going to be impaired. So sleep is like the number one piece of recovery for me. So whenever somebody starts to turn over that next stone, I'm thinking sleep first. And so let's come back to our four pillars first. I'm getting ahead of myself. Training, nutrition, recovery, i.e. sleep, and then mindset meditation. So training is number one. Like if I can lock in training, I'm feeling good. The next thing that a lot of people will ask is either nutrition or recovery. So sleep, got to focus on sleep. And then Okay, nutrition's another big one too, right? Because when you talk about recovery, fueling is recovery. Are they able to recover from their workouts via the nutrition they're putting in their bodies? And I think for a lot of my athletes, I feel pretty confident. I can tell because I either can look at them every day and I can see bumps up or down in their body composition. I can see in how they move. Enough of them have shared their nutrition strategies with me. And if they're not where they need to be, I can help adjust them. And keep in mind, I'm not a dietitian. I don't claim to be, but I can cover enough of the bases myself. And if not, I've got the secret weapon, i.e. my wife, who can help me with that as well. So I would say, Eugene, if we're talking recovery, first and foremost, check the sleep box. Seven and a half to nine hours, quality sleep. If you can invest in something like an aura ring or a whoop band, 
something of that nature. So you can really dive into the science behind that. I think that's huge. So seven and a half to nine hours is my kind of like my holy grail start there. Then we can start digging in with regards to quality. The next thing that I like to think about with regards to quality is the sleep breakdown. So for me, I like to make sure if possible, my athletes are getting 20% deep and 20% rim on average. And if you see skews in that one way or the other, that's something I want to be cognizant of. Uh, It could also just be indicative of when they go to sleep, right? So if you start to look at the sleep research, the first couple hours of, of sleep are more focused on deep versus the last couple hours of sleep are more geared towards REM. So if you've got somebody that goes to bed very late, they may be getting enough REM sleep, but not enough deep. And that deep is so important for the re- recovery, for getting those muscles rebuilt, right? So that that's kind of the next level. But if you're not if you're not there yet, that's totally fine. Get the seven and a half to nine hours down first. Then you can start digging in with regards to the quality and the breakdown and all that. Nutrition, huge. Make sure they're getting a balance of protein, carbs, fats. The, the mix is going to be unique to each individual. It's going to be unique to their sport, what they prefer to do. Obviously, when I get Dr. Mark on, we are going to go in depth on that because I think it's a fascinating topic. And then the final piece, when you're talking about recovery, now you can talk about modalities, right? And I would say whether it's massage, sauna, hot, cold, chiropractic, I mean, I'm sure I could go on and on. There's like a bazillion out there, cryotherapy. When you start talking about those modalities, just remember that they're kind of like training. They're going to have the biggest effect up front. So I'm a big believer you want to save it for when you need it. If you're one of those people that wants to jump in a cryo tank every day, that's fine, But just know and understand that every day you do it, it desensitizes your body a little bit more. So you're not going to have the same impact. So something that I talk about with my athletes is, hey, look, like maybe these first couple weeks of the off season, don't get any massage. Just don't get it. Right. Because we don't want to speed up that adaptation process. I don't I want you to feel a little bit stiff so that when you go to preseason and now we give you massage back. Oh, wow. Your body really responds well and you get this like super compensation effect because you're like, oh my gosh, my body feels great. I feel fluid. I feel loose. Like that's how you should feel. If you're getting a massage every day, it decreases the impact and it decreases the value just a little bit. So that's kind of my tier or my structure, right? Sleep over everything. Start with sleep, nutrition. They kind of be 1A, 1B if you really want to think of it like that. And then after those two are covered, then you can start talking about modalities. You can start talking about supplements. And a lot of that really comes down, everything is specific, right? So once I start to understand, okay, these are the things this person's struggling with, whether it's recovery rise, whether it's nutrition wise, then we can get more specific from there. But if we're talking big rocks, that's where I start. So Eugene, I did my best to answer that, my guy. I hope it helps. And let's answer our last big question, which comes from Ed. Ed wants to know, what does your evaluation process look like at IFAST? There are limitless options of what to test, but which tests do you feel provide the most value? So Ed, fantastic question here. Shameless plug, I do cover this, not just what we do at IFAST, but like a more expanded version that I use both online and offline in the Complete Coach Cert. So if you really want all the X's and O's, why do it? 
check that out. Bill and I are also diving into some of these topics at IFAST University as well. But I think there's a lot of ways you can go when it comes to assessment. It depends on like, where are you most comfortable? Bill does a lot of table-based tests because he can watch somebody squat, watch somebody rotate, watch somebody bend over and touch their toes, then put them on a table and tell you exactly where they are in space, what they do well, what they won't. He's just a master at that. Like it's just, it's amazing to watch. I'm not that good. (laughs) So I need to watch people do stuff. Like my assessment is, hey, we might do a few things on the table just so I get a basic idea of where they're at in space and, and what limitations they might have with regards to their movement. But from there, hey man, I want to watch you squat. I want to watch you hinge. I want to watch you do a push up, a lunge. I want to push you in half kneeling. I want to do all these things because to me, that's the most important piece. Like I want to know, hey, if you can't squat, why can't you squat? Or maybe you can't barbell back squat, but maybe you can do a goblet squat. Maybe you can't trap bar yet, but maybe we can start patterning you with an RDL. So I like to do all these things in my assessment because I think what's happened over the years is we put such a focus and such an emphasis on the assessment piece and we've forgotten like why we assess and that's we assess to write a better program. That That is the whole basis for doing an assessment. It's to write a better program that meets our clients and our athletes where they're at so we can hit the ground running on day one. And I think... Now the assessment has become, I don't know, like not that it shouldn't be a selling piece, but it's become something that it shouldn't be, right? It's like this huge song and dance, this huge production, like that's not what it's about. It should never have been about that. An assessment is about figuring out what a client or athlete does well, what they don't do well, so that ultimately we can write a better program for them. So Ed, I'm not sure if that totally answers your question. I hope it does. If not, definitely let me know and I'll either answer it on the podcast or I'll shoot a video about it. But yeah, really when it comes to the assessment process, it doesn't matter what I'm doing. It really most importantly matters to you where you're most comfortable and where you feel like you can get the most information about the client or athlete standing in front of you so you can write them the best possible program. Okay, a couple more questions and then we're going to wrap up. This next one is a lightning round question. Comes from my guy, Joe Dowdell. And if you know anything about Joe, just awesome, awesome dude, formerly from the NYC, has since relocated down to Miami. And Joe would like to know, has anyone ever seen Bill Hartman and Batman in the same room? And I'm just going to tell you, Joe, I don't think they have. And, you know, I see all the gear that he wears in these Instagram and YouTube videos like, I think it's like like a ploy, right? It's like, oh, look at me. I'm Batman, so I can't be Batman. I'm not so sure, my friend. I think we may be onto something. But until we catch them in the same room at the same time, it will continue to be a mystery. Okay, next. Maddie would like to know, is Joey Burton good at staying quiet during NBA media hits on draft night? So let me unpack this story this story for you real quick. Maddie is like just the do-it-all for Beyond Athletics. So the company that kind of hired me to help with Tyrell, put on his party, all that stuff. Maddie is just the boss behind the scenes that gets everything done. And the whole event was kind of strange, right? Because normally you're at wherever, New York City, and you're going through the draft and they walk up on stage. Well, COVID. COVID's a thing. So basically everybody's in their own little distinct areas. The NBA has sent these little media packages so they can focus on Ty and people are calling Ty and interviewing Ty. And so of course, me and Joey are on the other side of the room 
we never know when anything's going on because the other room was packed and we kind of had our own thing going on. Most importantly, it was about Ty. We didn't want to be in, you know, like right behind him. So anytime me and Joey would start talking loud, we'd start listening to our own music, whatever. Oh, quiet, quiet, quiet. Media, media hit. And of course, Joey just has this really deep masculine voice. So he's like booming and they'd be like, Joey, be quiet. So anyway, that was basically the second half of our night on Wednesday. You had to be there maybe, but yeah, sorry. We were having a good time. We enjoyed the evening. (laughs) And so hopefully this happens again. When it happens again, me and Joey will be a little bit better primed to be quiet whenever there's a media hit. Okay. Last but not least, this is not the same tie, but a different tie wants to know what was it like seeing your first NBA player get drafted? One word. It's really tough. So I'm going to give you the word and then I'm going to qualify it. The word is surreal. And and here's why I use that word. First off, if you get most people in this environment, you get a pre-draft guy, maybe four weeks, maybe four weeks, you get them uh, consistently. And then they're in Utah and then they're in New York and then they're in Houston and then they're in Charlotte. Like they're all over the place, right? So the fact that I had such a strong relationship with Ty, the fact that I feel like we grew up together in this process a little bit, the fact that we spent 118 sessions together in the gym, grinding it out, good days, bad, to sit there and watch that young man's name get called was surreal. Uh, And that's the only way that I can describe it. And man, just trying not to be emotional about that, but just super proud of him, of, of all the hard work that he put in, you know, the old term used to be hard gainer, right? Like, oh man, sorry, bro. You're just a hard gainer. You're never going to put on weight. And so they don't call them hard gainers in basketball. They just call them skinny guys. So for that skinny guy to keep coming in the gym, even though he didn't see success up front, even though people told him, you know, from his college coaches to NBA scouts, go back to school. You're not going to be ready. Your body's not ready for him to turn around, put 20 pounds on, and really show the world that he was ready, man, I couldn't be prouder. And it was just a truly surreal moment. 20 years later, man, 20 years later, I'm an overnight success. So, okay, my friend, that does it for the Q&A show. Like I said, wide ranging. We covered a lot of topics. We talked training, we talked recovery, we talked nutrition. I mean, a little bit of everything in between, some client psychology, keeping workouts fun, keeping things fresh. Really hope you enjoyed it. We've got just an all-star lineup of people coming over the next couple of weeks. Alex Calder from the Houston Dynamo. Dr. Mark Bubbs works with Canadian basketball. we got a pelvic floor specialist. we got people that work with special ops. I mean, really, really solid shows coming up over the next couple of weeks. So hope you enjoyed this one. Until next time, love and appreciate you. And we'll be back next week with our next episode. Take care. <laughs> <laughs>